0: Welcome to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning with Wigan and Dana, the show where CPAs, insurance professionals, investment brokers, trust companies, CFPs, and more can firm up on their understanding of estate planning strategies so they can better guide their clients to make wise decisions with their legacy. Future Focused is hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the private client services department at Wigan and Dana. Subscribe to Future Focused, sophisticated estate planning on your favorite podcast platform and share episodes with your clients. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron and Michael.
1: Welcome to Future Focused. I'm your host, Michael Clear. And today I'm joined with my partners, Aaron Nichols and Carolyn Rears. And we're going to talk about the Corporate Transparency Act.
2: So Michael and I have been really looking forward to this meeting with you, Carolyn. So just for our listeners' benefit, I'll give some background on why we're so fortunate to have her here with us today. So not only is she one of our partners, but she's, of course, a member of the American College of Trust and Estates Council. In that capacity, she chaired ACTEX committee relating to the Corporate Transparency Act. She also sat on the American Bar Association's committee for the same, and in that capacity was providing input to the Treasury Department as legislation was being developed and regulations were being written. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I'd love to hand it over to you to sort of kick this off for us and give us a little background.
3: Great. Thanks, Erin and Mike. I'm very happy to be here. The Corporate Transparency Act was a long time in the making, finally enacted in 2021, with final regulations being issued in September of last year, 2022. But there had been a long-standing effort globally and a lot of pressure on the United States to implement some sort of registry on a federal basis for ownership of small entities, so LLCs and other small companies and mid-sized companies where beneficial ownership was to be reported. We're a latecomer on the scene in Europe. Most countries have had beneficial ownership registries in place for many years. Most of those registries are public the U.S. registry will not be public, so that is an important differentiator with our legislation. But again, it been many years in the making. Various pieces of legislation proposed for probably 10 years before it was finally enacted in 2021. Is the sole purpose of the act,
2: or at least the primary purpose here, simply targeted toward Money
3: laundering, or do we have a bigger focus here? It's targeted toward money laundering, exactly. As I mentioned, in Europe, these registries have been around for quite some time. And as you know, and most practitioners in the US know, we form entities all the time and do not have to report when we form entities who the beneficial owners of the entity are. So there has to be a registered agent typically named, but otherwise normally an individual is not named in the registration of a company. And so what happened over the last few years is that the United States became known as the quote-unquote New Switzerland in many jurisdictions, which was a name that Treasury Department and our government was not particularly fond of, (laughs) (laughs) as you can imagine, putting additional pressure on the United States. But at the end of the day, all of this really came out of legislation and global initiatives that have been around for many years now that are targeted to preventing Money laundering. The Our Bank Secrecy Act, which was enacted in, I think, 1981, was targeted at preventing money laundering and terrorist financing. As everyone knows, the Bank Secrecy Act provisions were given lots of strong teeth again in 2001 in the Patriot Act after 9/11. And that's when these things sort of came to light in the U.S. where all the banks had to now do additional due diligence and whatnot around when they opened accounts for entities. Well, who's the control person? Who is the owner of the account at the end of the day? And you could no longer just open accounts for companies without providing more information. The history of this was really all around anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing efforts globally. And then general standards were enacted by something called the Financial Action Task Force in Paris, which was originally founded by the G7. And then it's up to each member country. And there are like 200 countries now that sign on to FATF standards around anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing. You're right. That's the history of it. It's not about finding tax evaders or tax compliance issues. It's really about anti-money laundering. And once the United States got this name as the new Switzerland, I think it really put a fire (laughs) under things.
1: (laughs) From that perspective, it's something that we are catching up on in the U.S. And it's kind of almost being done to us. And we're trying to react to it in a way on how it fits within our laws and our planning structures.
3: There has been a lot of resistance to the enactment of legislation like this, not because people are hiding money in the U.S., but because of the compliance issues. And there was a debate for a long time over who would be responsible for doing the reporting. And that's where the work that I did with the American College of Trust and Estates Council and on the ABA committee our efforts were focused at ensuring that the companies themselves are responsible for providing these reports and the information, as opposed to attorneys being required to give the information. So most people form companies with the assistance of an attorney. And because of our fundamental principles in U.S. law around confidentiality and attorney client privilege, our work focused on ensuring that attorneys were not the ones obligated to be providing information to the government about who our clients were and the intricacies of their private companies. Because as I mentioned before, the target is small and mid-sized, privately held business entities. There are 23 exceptions including large companies and then regulated companies. So banks, any entity that's SEC registered, insurance companies, those are all excluded under the exception. So what they're really looking at are small, closely held companies that are formed by individuals because that's where they see the opportunity for money laundering. So that's sort of what the focus was and why, the legislation was written specifically the way it was. So do you think that is part of the reason then for the amount of
2: hype that the Corporate Transparency Act is getting is just the number of exceptions to consider when trying to figure out whether the company that you own is a reporting company?
3: No, I think the hype is because this is dramatic. It's really dramatic. The exceptions are as I mentioned, entities that are already subject to government regulation in some way or form. FinCEN, which is a division of treasury where these reports will be filed electronically through a new system that's being developed called the BOSS system. FinCEN estimates there are 32 million existing entities that are going to have to register under this act. And then on a go-forward basis, five million entities per year, new entities that will have to register. The noise and the hype is because this is a big deal. It's a big deal because so many companies will have to register. Also because the legislation's fairly broad in that you have to report beneficial owners. So that's anyone owning at least a 25% interest in the company, but also substantial control persons. And the way they define substantial control person is quite broad and could apply to many people in a company, including corporate officers, potentially directors. And so that's where... A lot of people could come under the definition of a control person, and although regulations have been issued, there are still a lot of questions and a lot subject to interpretation as to who that exactly includes. So, for example, in the regulations, they clarified that a lawyer serving as a general counsel or independently advising a company or an accountant are not control persons, But the president, the CEO, chief operating officers, all those people come under a substantial control person. A lot of people could potentially be reported and the information includes their name, their address, an identifying number, so a social security number, you have to provide an identification. All of that is sort of antithetical to our history of being able to form companies with not only not identifying owners, but certainly not providing personal information. And so that's, I think, what's gotten their attention for sure.
2: Are there then severe penalties for non compliance? Because I'm thinking of the clients that we have that have their closely held LLC on autopilot. It might be in a different jurisdiction, but they pay a service corporation to serve as registered agent, and they're doing the annual reports. So up to this point, they're not
3: thinking about it on an annual basis. The penalties are significant. There are civil and criminal penalties. The civil penalty is not more than $500 per day that the violation continues or isn't remedied. And the criminal fine is not more than $10,000 or imprisonment for not more than two (laughs) years or both. (laughs) (laughs) No big deal. (laughs) So yeah, there's real teeth to it. I think one of the issues too that's tricky and we had hoped for some more guidance in final regulations is around corrective reports. So for new companies, you have 30 days to file your beneficial owner report through this online registry with FinCEN. You also have a requirement that if there is a change in a control person or a beneficial owner, you have 30 days to make a corrective report. So that is a very short timeframe for people, I think, to really understand what the requirements are and to get those reports filed. So a lot of people will be surprised, (laughs) I think, at the deadlines and how quick and also the amount of information that you need to provide in order to be compliant. And just to back up for a moment on effective dates. So the reporting regulations implement the act in two stages. The first set of entities that have to report are new entities. So starting January 1, 2024, any entity covered by the act has to start filing reports, and you have within 30 days of formation to file your report. Existing entities, so those 32 million companies I mentioned before, have until January 1, 2025, To report. So they have to start, get compliant, file their first report by then, and then any continuing report. So it's a bit of a phase in. This BOSS system, this electronic filing system, is apparently developed and being tested by Treasury. It's not released to the public yet. And there is pressure on Treasury to delay the effective date, the implementation date of January 1 of next year. In August, Treasury came out and made a statement that they've heard those requests and they're considering it, but we have no clarity around what that extension might look like. And the speculation is that it will simply maybe provide for 60 or 90 days for new entities to report. So in other words, not a very dramatic extension. So it's interesting because
2: a lot of the talk that I had heard leading up to this was really centered on a concern about privacy. And this reporting could really undermine the point of a lot of these companies. But in fact, given that it's not public and it doesn't sound like they're asking for a ton of information. It seems like what has bigger teeth here then is simply the penalty for non-compliance. Is that the biggest risk? Is
3: this isn't on someone's radar? Yes. So to your point, this is not a public registry. Only the federal government has access to the registry. Even state law enforcement needs a warrant or some sort of judicial right to receive the information. And outside of the U.S., they need to come in and get some kind of a court order in order to access the registry. So it is very restrictive as to who, even within law enforcement, has access to the information. So obviously, Treasury has it because that's where it's filed and it is accessible to federal law enforcement. But beyond that, it's very restrictive which again is very different than the registries in place in most countries in Europe and elsewhere. Short of a cyber breach, (laughs) this isn't going to expose people to privacy risk. We file tax returns that are also have all our private information. So it's not really... I don't think more of a privacy issue for taxpayers who are trying to be, or individuals and companies trying to be compliant. It's more the the penalties and the teeth of the legislation, for sure.
1: Do we see an industry forming around it outside of law firms? That so are not going, yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> uh-huh. Good
3: question. In fact, yesterday was the first I've seen of a company which is not a registered service company. So you would sort of say, well, who's going to do all this? Because it is a bit complicated. Top of mind would be corporate service providers. So the companies that serve as registered agent when we form companies in Delaware or elsewhere. And as yet, they're not advertising these services. I think everyone's trying to wrap their heads around what's really required and how they're going to be compliant. So as I mentioned, yesterday was the first time I actually got a brochure from a new company that's advertising CTA services. And I haven't had a chance to go on their website and check them out yet, but not a big cottage industry yet. And in fact, what we hear a lot about is how people are going to try and not be reporters. (laughs) So law firm's perfect example Traditionally, we form companies all the time for clients. And again, even though we form, we're not the reporting entity. The company needs to be filing the report. But in addition to filing the beneficial ownership information and substantial control, the person who formed the company is also a reported person. So, if I instruct my paralegal to file articles of incorporation in Delaware, she's going to be reported and I'm going to be reported. And it's limited to two people. So that was something helpful under the final regulations that the mechanics of filing, that filer reporting person, is the person who actually files the articles and if they're acting under the direction of somebody like a law firm partner, then that partner is also reported. To whom? On the report. Okay. So if, if there's a brand new company, so Aaron decides her family's going to go into business and they form a company and there are four owners in the family Each owner holding 25% is reported. If Erin's the president of the company, she'll be reported as a control person. If she asks me if I can help her form the company and I have my paralegal file the articles, then my paralegal and I are also going to be on that report that Erin files with Boss. So
1: when Erin goes and transfers her 25% interest to me... That has to be reported.
3: Now, the company has 30 days to report that Aaron's no longer a beneficial owner, but Mike Clear is.
1: And you has been involved and reported that first time?
3: So no change.
1: No change, no continued responsibility. Right. Okay, that's good.
2: How then is the government getting the messaging out about this? So obviously, if I'm working with you, Carolyn, to set up my family entity, you'll have advised me long since about this reporting requirement. But in most jurisdictions, forming an LLC is quite easy and can be done by a layperson. So what if my next-door neighbor forms an LLC on his own in January? It happens to qualify as a reporting company. Is there something at the state level that gets sent out as a notification in connection with the formation? Or how else are these incorporators on notice that
3: they have this requirement that has to be met within 30 days? All to be determined. So far, there's no information about that on a state level. I haven't read anything about individual states when you go to file something. If I want to file a new company in New York that New York's going to say to me, oh, by the way, you know, you have this federal filing requirement. Maybe states will wrap their heads around this and figure something out. Currently, the only thing being published is through Treasury. They've issued two sort of frequently asked questions around CTA, but honestly, people don't know about it. I talk to partners here in our firm all the time who say, wait, what is this thing about? You know, and that's inside a law firm where We get emails trafficked around, oh, here's new legislation. So for regular people who just want to form a company for one reason or another, I wouldn't be surprised if the vast majority have no idea what the Corporate Transparency Act is. There were hearings actually held in July in Congress and at the behest of sort of grassroots organizations, the Small Business Association, and other groups saying, people don't know about this. We need more time and we need better regulations, more clarity around questions involving who needs to file and how it gets filed and all of that information. So there's been a lot of noise around, people don't know about this yet, but as yet, not a lot coming out of Treasury or the states with respect to compliance. And on that note, In New York and California, there is proposed legislation to implement beneficial ownership registries in those states. And in fact, New York's is designed to be a public beneficial ownership registry. It's all proposed at the moment, but it's pretty interesting that in some states, the reaction is, yeah, why haven't we be doing this? Maybe we should be doing it on a state level in addition to the federal level.
1: I'm guessing. But I would imagine, so if you created that entity in Delaware, Delaware is not going to have something like that. Just (laughs) guessing. But if you were doing business in New York, you probably had to register to do business in New York and they'll try to set you there.
3: That's exactly right. So if the trigger for the reporting is a registration, a formal state registration somewhere, so even like foreign companies you want to come and do business in New York and you register in New York. Now, even though you're incorporated in the BVI or somewhere or Switzerland or someplace, you've got to now register under the CTA unless you fall on the exception, because now you've made a filing with a state corporate agency. The biggest exception we haven't talked about are common law trusts. In addition to the large companies, regulated companies and those 23 exceptions, the other Entity, if you will, that's not covered by the current act are common law trusts. So if you don't have to file anything with your state to form your trust, then that trust, at least currently, is not subject to CTA reporting. Trusts are something that Treasury announced in the regulations that they would come back to in two or three years and think about whether they should require registration.
1: Thinking about entities that Will require it you so you creating an LLC or a C-corp. Yes. A partnership. Where so, does that fall? Only yeah. if you actually have to file?
3: So again, it's a matter of state law. So general partnerships generally don't file anything. Limited partnerships and, or LLPs usually do. So those would come within the filing requirement. So it is a pretty straight line question of, well, if I have to file with the state to be recognized, then I have to, to see if I fall within CTA or outside one of the exceptions.
1: So right now, trusts don't. So we create a trust, a revocable trust, an irrevocable trust. We don't file under the CTA. But I have a feeling you're going to tell me the trustees or the beneficiaries may, if they own an entity, an LLC, that they may be the existence of that trust might be a beneficial owner or a control person?
3: Yes. So the application of trust here is for trusts that form companies. So we're private client lawyers sitting at the table today. Oftentimes we create a trust and then the trust is going to own a piece of real estate or it's going to own a portfolio of stocks. And often, we will form an LLC to actually house that real estate or house that group of stocks for liability protection, maybe to give a manager control over the management of that particular asset inside the trust. If the trust owns 25% or more of that LLC, then the trust is reported as a beneficial owner by the company. So again, the trustee doesn't have a reporting obligation, but whoever formed the company, that company is now going to have to report the trust as one of its beneficial owners. And then the question is, okay, so other than the trustee, who gets reported? Who's the beneficial owner of a trust? And there's some clarification in the regulations where for a revocable trust— obviously the grantor or settler who can revoke the trust is controlling the trust and that person is reported. In addition, anybody in a trust who has the right to take money out of the trust, so in other words, control what's in the trust, the assets, also will normally be treated as a beneficial owner and reported as a control person. Where things get interesting is if You have discretionary trusts, which are how we write probably 90% of our trust today. So mom and dad created a trust for the benefit of all of our descendants now living and hereafter born. None of those beneficiaries has a right to take money out of the trust, but at the end of the day, they are the beneficial owners of the trust. But at least currently, none of those beneficiaries are reported because they don't fall within the statute or the regulations as they're currently written. But I expect that we'll see a lot more clarity around trusts because as we know, trusts aren't as simple as, well, there's just a trustee and a beneficiary these days. There are often trust protectors and there are investment trust advisors or trustees and there are distribution advisors and there are selectors and there are all these other people who wear hats with a trust And we're going to have to kind of really think through who among those individuals needs to be reported, again, as control persons under this trust beneficial owner.
2: It'll be interesting. That sounds almost a little bit reminiscent of the Hart-Scott-Rodino filing requirements to the FTC going through all of the fiduciary appointments within a trust to decide whether you have a filing requirement there. It's not always easy to marry a different area of the law with trust law. So I'll be curious to see how that
3: comes out. You raise a good point because I think one of the biggest challenges will be for companies to actually get all this information from beneficial owners and control persons because people are not normally standing up and volunteering all their personal information in your example, perfect example, the beneficiary, let's say they do fall within reporting because they have a power to withdraw 5% of the trust per year, which is not an uncommon thing that we do in trust. Then that person probably needs to be reported. They're not raising their hand and saying, oh, so Aaron, I know you have to report me, so here's all my information. Yeah. And to the same extent, like for companies closely held, smaller companies maybe you have that are created just to do business, you've got to now have in your operating agreements provisions that require owners to give the information the company needs in order to be compliant. Because you could just have recalcitrant owners or recalcitrant officers who say, yeah, I'm not giving you my information. We're going to have to be thinking creatively about how to require people to volunteer the information that the company needs because as we said before, the penalties are pretty serious.
1: On the 25% rule, maybe there's no answer yet, is there an aggregation that happens?
3: So that is a question of debate and the answer is we don't know. I think the prevailing viewpoint is that you aggregate. So let's do an example. John dies and he creates a trust under his will for the benefit of his surviving spouse. So that's a marital trust. And then he also creates a trust for the benefit of his descendants, which we call the family trust. And let's say there's real estate, so there's an LLC, and proportionately under the will, the marital trust got 20% of the LLC and the family trust got 10%. So alone, neither trust is a beneficial owner because one has 20 and one has 10. But now we've, let's say the same trustee, the wife is the trustee, the surviving spouse. And so she technically controls 30% of that entity. I think it'd be hard to argue you don't aggregate in that circumstance. I think if you have different trustees, then maybe there's an argument because it's that person doesn't have the same level of control. This gets really interesting and a lot of the corporate trust companies are struggling around a lot of these questions as well because they may very well have aggregate trusts where they're the trustee and aren't as closely related as what I explained. And so then do you aggregate or not? And the other big question for a trust companies, again, unanswered question is, do you get to just name the trust company or do you name the actual breathing person who's in charge of the trust, the trust administrator, or the trust officer inside the trust company, which would arguably be disincentive for people wanting to take on those roles. (laughs) But the whole point of the legislation is to find the living, breathing person behind the company. And so I'm not sure that trust companies are going to be able to just stop at reporting the corporate trustee information.
1: So still a lot to come in this topic. Yes, lots of questions. Lots of questions. Interesting application as we just look at it. So we know January 1st, 2024, our new entities currently are going to have to be reported with their beneficial owners. And then we'll have another year to figure out the other 32 million (laughs) reports that we need to do. And based
3: upon the cryptic news we got from Treasury in August, it does look like even if they stick to the January 1, 2024 date, that entities will have a little bit more time than 30 days from formation to actually get those reports in. That's great. It'll be interesting.
2: Absolutely. So I'll flag at least then, obviously, there's more forthcoming and certainly from us as well on this topic. Our department will be issuing multiple advisories, I think, between now and and year end as we work through this. So certainly we'll put pen to paper when it comes to actually defining reporting companies and stuff. But can't thank you enough for joining us today. My
3: pleasure. Absolutely. It'll be fun to watch. Exactly.
0: Thank you for listening to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning, hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan & Dana. At Wigan & Dana, our aim is preserving the wealth that a family has worked so hard to create and pride ourselves in offering value-driven solutions and results. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, share episodes with your clients, and follow our highly talented, creative, and experienced lawyers on LinkedIn for even more great insight. We'll see you next time on future-focused, sophisticated estate planning.